A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask three writers from the magazine to read their pieces aloud. I'm Natasha Feroz and here's what we have this week. Katie Balls looks at what foreign policy would look like under a Liz Truss government. Rachel Johnson reflects on the Queen's message to the Lioness's victory. And finally, Neil Clark on what we can learn from Jim Corbett's Tiger Tales. First up, Katie Balls. When Tom Tugendhat announced he was backing Liz Truss for Prime Minister, his former supporters were dismayed. He was a candidate for the One Nation Caucus of moderate MPs, who defined themselves against the Tory right. Anyone but Truss was their mantra, and they lined up behind Rishi Sunak, yet here was their former poster boy supporting their nemesis. What could Truss and Tugendhat possibly have in common? The answer can be summed up in a word. China. For better or worse, Truss is an instinctive politician. On foreign affairs, she was held back by Boris Johnson, who was more cautious on China. If she becomes Prime Minister, which looks likely, she would spend more on defence and take a more muscular stance against aggressors. It's a pitch that's already won over Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, Penny Mordaunt, his predecessor, and Trade Secretary Anne-Marie Trevelyan. As the public imagines what life would be like under a Prime Minister Truss, it's on foreign affairs that we have the clearest idea. Since entering the Foreign Office in September, she has earned a reputation for her love of Instagram, her dislike of groupthink, and her diplomacy via karaoke. But most importantly, she has established her own framework on foreign affairs, which she refers to as a network of liberty. She divides the world into friends and enemies of liberty. Rather than focusing on relations with Western neighbours or long-established allies, she thinks the UK should be open to working with like-minded, free-trading partners around the world who are willing to prioritise the defence of democracy. Call it geoliberalism, says a supporter. Those close to trust envisage her taking a bigger role on the world stage and an active interest in trade. The UN General Assembly in New York would likely be her first trip. It's scheduled a week after the new Prime Minister takes office. Visiting Kiev would also be a priority, and her first foreign call would go to President Zelensky, assuring him that Britain is every bit as committed to Ukraine as it was under Johnson. When Emmanuel Macron recently proposed a new European political community in the face of the Ukraine crisis, Johnson gave the idea some lip service but it's unlikely to receive the same from Truss. She didn't mention the EU once in her first party conference speech as Foreign Secretary and made her first official visit to France only last month. At the Tory hustings this week, she declared that the only thing the EU understood was strength, which is why she had introduced the protocol bill, which some MPs fret will lead to a trade war. She believes the UN is fatally compromised by having China and Russia as two of the five permanent members of the Security Council. She would instead look to the G7 as a means for defending democracy. She is enthusiastic about NATO and the Commonwealth and has long fought for the UK to be a member of the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, viewing economic policy as a way to strengthen alliances. Although her stance in Ukraine would not see much divergence from Johnson's, it could be more hawkish. 
She has been one of the most vocal advocates for sending defensive weaponry to Ukraine and the need to keep up resolve. Like Zelensky, she abhors suggestions of Ukraine cutting any peace deal, believing that it would only lead to Vladimir Putin returning and rearming. She thinks another Minsk deal should be avoided at all costs, says one aide, referring to the Franco-German pact, which in effect accepted Russia's annexation of Ukraine. In this regard, she is a Ukrainian maximalist. In her Mansion House speech in April, she said Russia must be pushed out of the whole of Ukraine, suggesting this should include Crimea, which Russia annexed prior to the February invasion. This was decried by her critics as a dangerous escalation, but her position is in line with Ukrainian public opinion. The last book she read was Winter is Coming by Garry Kasparov, the exiled Russian grandmaster who wants world leaders to throw Russia back into the Stone Age. Trust believes the West has a tendency not to listen to voices from Russia and the neighbouring states. She's built close ties in the Baltics, including with her Lithuanian counterpart, Gabriela Slambergis. When his government let Taiwan open a trade office in Vilnius under its own name, the CCP was so enraged that it stopped imports from Lithuania. A trust government would likely take the toughest position on China of any to date. In any G7 discussion about China, she would be expected to be among the most hawkish in the room. She previously suggested that Western countries needed to learn the lesson of Ukraine by arming Taiwan early to prevent a Chinese invasion though her campaign suggests she would prioritise moral support. She would also take a firm stance on trade with China, and is more open than her predecessor to the so-called Genocide Amendment, which could give British judges the power to annul trade deals with countries convicted of genocide. As Trade Secretary, she wanted to go further than Number 10 would allow on free trade with allies, and saw herself as fighting what her aides jokingly called a protectionist axis of evil, which included the likes of Michael Gove and George Eustace. This was despite the fact that she represents a farming constituency, where there could be opposition to her position. Under Prime Minister Truss, freedom-loving allies from the Indo-Pacific to the Baltics would be welcomed into the fold. But there is also space for those who don't yet fit the bill. Truss thinks it is better to keep the likes of Indonesia and Saudi Arabia on side, rather than allowing them to be wooed by aggressors such as China and Russia. In a Truss era, liberty which also happens to be her daughter's name, will be the defining principle, not just when it comes to tackling the nanny state, but on the world stage too. Her approach will create plenty of challenges for Britain, but it's a risk the Tory party looks as though it wants to take. That was Katie Balls. Next, Rachel Johnson. The season has ended, and apart from the spectator's summer bash, of course, the two bang-up parties of July were discos in the Cotswolds, They do things differently there. At Jemima Goldsmith's, I danced so hard in high heels with a selection of her handsome young swains that I suspect the double hip replacement will be sooner rather than later. At Carrie and Boris's wedding do in a magical flower-filled field, we all busted out our best moods. I was taught the slut drop by Liz Hurley years ago in Nick Coleridge's party barn in Worcestershire, She demonstrated how to collapse to the floor like a broken deck chair on the count of three. My problem at Dalesford was getting up again, not a challenge shared by my sister-in-law. She could win a Commonwealth gold hands down in this particular high-risk dance move. I'd kicked off my shoes to save on physio bills later, but still ripped off a big toenail during the conga. 
Conclusion, I can no longer slut drop, but I can still name drop for Britain till the cows come home. I came back from Tuscany for the wedding bash and I'm not surprised about the staycation boom as foreign travel is a total mare. Instead of the Schengen wave, each passport must be scanned and wet stamped by a person at a desk or in a kiosk in case you overstay your welcome in Europe, i.e. we have a hard border for the first time in my adult life. When Liz and Rishi were asked whether the cluster shambles at Channel Ports was anything to do with Brexit, I was stunned when both went for a post-truth, black is white, straight to camera, no. Astonishing. This at a time when it's harder to leave the country legally than to enter by sea illegally and you can get to Australia faster than France. It seems that Brexit's going the way of true communism. Votaries of the cult will simply announce we just haven't done it right and tried hard enough. The only consolation is my new, not blue, but black passport is much more romantic now, with the inked oblongs already saying Innsbruck, Zurich, Pisa, Ibiza. Gained a schoolboy stamp collection. Lost the right to transit and to work and live in 28 countries in a smug flash of burgundy. The government's conclusion, worth it. My solution to any problem is either to follow my late mother's mantra, it is urgent to do nothing, or rush out and play tennis. As an exercise slash sports addict, I wept tears of joy when the lionesses won, high blonde ponytails streaming. I came home from work at LBC late on Sunday evening and re-watched the last two hours of the BBC's coverage properly again. The team gave a master class in how to play the beautiful game and when the Queen declared them an inspiration for girls and women in a message shared within minutes of the extra time win, I was itching to tweet her madge a correction. Surely the Lioness's performance should serve as an inspiration and a lesson for boys and men, especially professional footballers, rather than us and our sex. Following my mother's advice, I manfully resisted the urge. As London's the epicentre of both theatre and the law, it's not surprising that the two worlds often merge as they did last week. I went to the Almeida for a sold-out performance of Patriots, the Peter Morgan play about the troika of Vladimir Putin, Roman Abramovich and Boris Berezovsky. In a key scene, a High Court judge, Dame Liz Gloucester, played by Aoife Hines, dismisses Boris's £3.5 billion case against Roman, even though by this stage the claimant is a washed-up ex-oligarch and the accused is stooging for Putin. Gripping drama, hat tips to Tom Hollander as Berezovsky and Will Keane as Putin, but live real-time competition was two miles down the road in the libel capital of the world, where another High Court judge, Mrs Justice Stain, had just delivered her withering verdict in the Wagatha Christie trial of the century. And as every wag has written, dot, 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 it was Rebecca Vardy's account after all. Only one QC I consulted predicted this. He said the judge would work out what she thought the fair answer was, i.e. that Colleen Rooney was correct, and then in quotes, work backwards to exonerate her. Poor Becky. She will forever be in my heart for her pigeon apothem worthy of Eric Cantona at his best, 
her description of Peter Andre's Chipolata and then sending my father a hamper after they'd both survived the jungle together. The nations had months of free-to-air entertainment while she could be on the hook for millions. Oh well, as someone once said, them's the breaks. That was Rachel Johnson. And finally, Neil Clark. The word terror is so generally and universally used in connection with everyday trivial matters that it is apt to fail to convey, when intended to do so, its real meaning. Thus begins the third chapter of The Man-Eating Leopard of Rudra Prayag, part of the Man-Eater series by the great Anglo-Indian hunter and naturalist Jim Corbett. I was reminded of Corbett and his wonderful books when reading last week that human-assaulting tigers are once again on the prowl in Nepal, with 104 attacks and 62 people killed in the past three years. Conservation efforts have seen tiger numbers rise threefold since 2010, but with that good news comes the bad news of increased danger to humans. In March, a tiger believed to have killed five people was captured in western Nepal. Meanwhile, in India, a tigress apparently responsible for two deaths was captured in June. So the man-eaters are back. Though the terror from the current wave does thankfully seem less than in the days of Corbett. No curfew order has ever been more strictly enforced and more implicitly obeyed than the curfew imposed by the man-eating leopard of Rudra Prayag, he wrote. During the hours of daylight, life continued more or less as normal. But at night, an ominous silence brooded over the whole area. Little wonder, for eight long years between 1918 and 1926, the 50,000 inhabitants of Garhwal in the United Provinces of Northern India and the 60,000 Hindu pilgrims who passed through the district annually on their way to the ancient shrines at Kedanath and Badranath lived in fear of the ferocious big cat that claimed the lives of 125 people. One of the victims was a 14-year-old orphan employed to look after a flock of 40 goats. He slept with the goats in a small room. But even though the door was fastened by a piece of wood, the leopard got in, killed the poor boy and then carried him off to a deep rocky ravine where he devoured him. The goats were left completely unscathed. A shocking story and there are plenty more like it, but don't worry, we can be sure that our hero Jim will ultimately stop the leopard's reign of terror. I first encountered Corbett's three-volume Manita series in childhood. We had copies of his books in my school library back in the mid-1970s and they were always among the most popular to borrow. Goodness me, how those hardback editions with their pictures of snarling big cats on the cover captured our imaginations and broadened our horizons. Corbett was a great writer, dramatic yet reflective, to quote the OUP's omnibus edition of his works, who brought the Indian Himalayas of the early 20th century vividly to life with his understated, descriptive prose. For much of the post-war era, his books on hunting the man-eating Bengal tigers and leopards of the Raj were hugely successful. More than four million copies of Man-Eaters of Kuman had been sold worldwide by 1980. The BBC made a television version six years later. But one worries that in the 21st century, Corbett's work is not read anything like so widely, particularly by children, who would gain so much from his incredibly exciting tales. Yes, the books involve hunting, which is now very un-PC, but it's the hunting of bloodthirsty beasts which had claimed more than 1,500 lives between them. And aside from that, there is so much we can learn about life from Corbett's writing. 
The need for patience is one of the greatest lessons. Corbett, who had been tracking wild animals in India since childhood, was commissioned by Raj officials to kill man-eaters, but sometimes, given the cat's wide range, that took an awfully long time. While in pursuit, the great shikari spends night after night sleeping, or trying to sleep, in trees. He goes days without food and drink. But whatever the hardships, he never gives up. He must get his prey. The Manita series also reminds us that the closer we are to danger, the more we feel alive. The greater the risks we, we run, and risks don't get much greater than going after man-eating tigers alone and on foot, the greater the joy of living. The time I spent in the jungles held unalloyed happiness for me, and that happiness I would now gladly share, Corbett wrote. My happiness, I believe, resulted from the fact that all wildlife is happy in its natural surroundings. In nature there is no sorrow and no repining. A bird from a flock or an animal from a herd is taken by a hawk or by a carnivorous beast, and those that are left rejoice that their time had not come today and have no thought of tomorrow. Throughout his work, Corbett's respect for his prey shines through. He castigates people who class leopards as vermin. Those who have never seen a leopard under favourable conditions in his natural surroundings can have no conception of the grace of movement and beauty and of colouring of this most graceful and the most beautiful of all animals in our Indian jungles, he says. Although they inflict terrible harm on village communities, he actually makes us feel sorry for the big cats he is so determined to kill. A man-eating tiger is a tiger that has been compelled through a stress of circumstances beyond its control to adopt a diet alien to it. Human beings are not the natural prey of tigers and it is only when tigers have been incapacitated through wounds and old age that in order to live they are compelled to take a diet of human flesh, he explains in his introduction to Man-Eaters of Kuman. After shooting the Champawat tigress, said by the Guinness Book of Records to have been responsible for 436 human deaths, he finds that she had permanent damage to her teeth from a previous gunshot wound meaning she had no option but to switch to man-eating to keep her and her cubs alive. The Taladess man-eater who killed around 150 humans over an eight-year period had been seriously injured in an encounter with a porcupine, again making it difficult for her to provide for her family without turning to human flesh. Throughout the books there are some wonderful insights into the natural world. In the Temple Tiger, we get a fight between a tiger and a Himalayan black bear, which Corbett notes is only the second case he knows of different species of animals fighting for the sake of fighting. The man-eating leopard of Rudra contains a savage scrap between the man-eater and another leopard determined to protect his territory. When Corbett finally gets his kill, he reflects that the only crime of the best hated and most feared animal in all of India was that he had shed human blood. Not because he was a fiend, but only in order that he might live. Modern readers might find it hard to comprehend that a series of books about killing tigers and leopards actually makes the strongest case for preserving them. But that's exactly how it is. Corbett swapped his gun for a camera and became a pioneering conservationist, helping to establish India's first national park in Uttarakhand, which is fittingly named after him. It's part of his legacy that we're once again reading about man-eating big cats in the Himalayas, though now the solution is a tranquilizer dart and rehoming away from humans rather than a bullet.
Corbett's work helped save the tiger, and I think it can save us too. It's so easy in today's world to feel utterly overwhelmed by emails, text messages, social media notifications, breaking news stories, and the internet in general. And we all know how feeling overwhelmed can lead to stress and depression. So why not switch off from modern living for a while and head into the Indian jungle with Jim Corbett and his rifle? I promise you won't regret it. That was Neil Clark. And that's it for this week. If you'd like to hear more stories like these, why not pick up a copy of our magazine? I'm Natasha Furrows and do join us again next week.